Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast exploring the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm Patton McDowell, and I'm your host, happy to bring you a new set of resources for your professional development plan as you move forward on the path. You're going to enjoy this conversation I had with Ronnie Bryant. He literally wrote a book on nonprofit leadership titled Driving from the Back Seat, Nonprofit Leadership Lessons. Well, the first thing Ronnie and I talk about, of course, is the title of his book, and he explains fully that unique position that many executive directors that are listening can really understand, Uh, the uh, challenges and opportunities of having to lead directly and indirectly in a nonprofit setting. We also talked about Ronnie's organizational strategies for hiring and managing talent and how to simply know when it's time to leave an organization. Where Ronnie really shines is his insight in dealing with boards of directors, which he had to do on many occasions in different organizations. Um, And as he points out, there are some unique challenges to dealing with uh, a situation where you have literally 15 bosses when the entire board is who you report to. Ronnie also can speak to the challenges and opportunities of a lateral entry into the nonprofit field as someone who came from a for-profit setting into nonprofit. And his wisdom on that transition shines both in our conversation and in his book. So don't forget to check out the show notes on this episode number 23. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources and information that Ronnie and I talked about and as well as some of the good work he's doing as now uh, executive coach and consultant. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ronnie Bryant. Ronnie, thank you for joining me on the path. Patton, thank you and good morning. Well, delighted to have this conversation with you. I have enjoyed many over the years. Your leadership career is impressive and one that I know will lead to good advice, frankly, for so many of our listeners who are on the path or thinking about joining the nonprofit path. And who better to talk to than you, who's literally written a book about nonprofit experience and advice. Um, I will feature this, absolutely. But tell us, Ronnie, where did you come up with the title, Driving from the Backseat? Well, Driving from the Backseat is the euphemism for the way I perceive not-for-profit or non-profit management. The book is targeted to CEOs and executive directors, and it's tips for surviving at the leadership helm of an organization. And technically, you're in the back seat with your board, you know, parenthetically, in the front seat. Right. But you have controls in the back seat. Uh, so they're actually in the front seat, assuming the, the position of steering the organization. But you, you have a very significant influence from the back seat also. And how you manage those influences will determine the probability of your the success and tenure at the organization. I, I, I love that image. And I guess in your case, Ronnie, it's okay. to It's a good thing to be a backseat driver in this case. 
most definitely it's a matter of survival <laughs> exactly well speaking of someone who has more than survived along a nonprofit journey how'd you first get into this space that we call nonprofit well when i um i started my working career in the for-profit corporate world with uh, what eventually was the electric what eventually became AT&T yep and after leaving um AT&T i joined uh, the Shreveport Chamber of Commerce in Shreveport, Louisiana, my hometown. And that was my first not-for-profit uh, opportunity, and it began uh, my my not-for-profit realm. And up until my stepping down, uh, this would have been around 1990. Right. And I stepped down from the Charlotte Regional Partnership retired there in 2018. So 28 years roughly of not-for-profit experience in four different organizations, Shreveport Chamber of Commerce, the St. Louis Regional Commerce and Growth Association, the Pittsburgh Regional Alliance, and finally with the Charlotte Regional Partnership. That's fantastic. And as you have been quick to point out, wonderful communities, that you have been a big part of in each case and certainly have uh, had to manage uh, lots of volume of relationships and information and so forth. And uh, it's become a bit of a running joke because we never fully organize ourselves. But Ronnie, how have you or did you kind of manage the volume of being a nonprofit executive director? Well, I think time management and, and, and project management and go hand in hand. And a project can be defined as any activity that has to be undertaken. You could call it activity management if you like. But I am a very strickler for the the, uh, due diligence of my calendar. Yep. I put everything on my calendar and I only manage one calendar. I I find it very frustrating even watching someone who works with several calendars and then I hear the, oh, I didn't get this on the right calendar. That would drive me <laughs> totally bad. Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm a strickler uh, for that type of activity. But also I'm, I'm big on my to-do list, managing my to-do list. I keep a very detailed to-do list that's priori- excuse me, prioritized in the sense that I know at any given time, Patton, what I should be doing and when it needs to be completed. I know what's coming down the pipe. Um, I am a strickler for returning calls, returning emails. I think part of success in any environment is how it's how you deal with people yep. and, and how you're perceived by the individuals that you encounter uh, throughout your daily activity. And I want an experience with me to be a positive one. And, and you can control that. Even if, the, even if the discussion has a negative connotation, maybe you're contacting someone regarding a complaint or vice versa. 
they're contacting you regarding a complaint. That conversation and interaction does not have to be uh, contentious or it does not have to be negative. So when you combine a inherent desire to make every experience a good experience, then that goes hand in hand with ensuring that you communicate and you follow up and your engagement with people or a, a positive engagement as opposed to a negative engagement. Yeah, that's well put. And I've seen you in action. You certainly have a diplomacy, but you have not lost the ability to, though, manage and encourage uh, productivity, right, in, in yourself mm-hmm. and in the people you work with. Well, it most definitely. And that's one of the reasons I really enjoy one aspect of my company running O'Brien LLC is executive coaching. And so I spend a lot of time with C-level uh, executives in one-on-one situation, helping them understand how to improve various aspects of their lives. And that is, for me, very rewarding because the I practice what I preach. So that makes me better. And, then, and the better I get, the, the better prepared I am to help my clients. Yeah, you set a great example. And I, I wonder, Ronnie, when you first started in the nonprofit area, in the chamber in particular, um, did you have good leadership then? Uh, do you look back now and say, yeah, I, I kind of followed some mentors or early advisors that helped kind of set you on a path that you've you know, succeeded on ever since? Yes and no. I had one set of leadership that was very different for me in that regard because when I I, I was with the with AT&T about 15 years and probably during that period I might have had about I don't know eight different jobs because it was a big facility a lot of movement upward mobility and but when I left there and I went to a small and went back up the plant at its peak, probably peaked out around 12,000 people. It was a big facility. And when I left there as a middle um, management employee, I went to an organization that maybe had 20 employees. Totally different environment. Not-for-profit organization. And two, two very interesting aspects of it is that I... Prior to going to the chamber, I had never worked for directly for anyone younger than me. And and initially I didn't like it. And and I really set myself on a mission to do something about it and propelled myself. I was very fortunate that we had a, a CEO who who was a um who became a very strong mentor of mine and really pushed me to, to eventually I became the number two person in the organization. Um, but it was because of his pushing and, and, and mentoring and encouraging and challenging me that really, that really drove me. At that particular time, I was in, I guess, 1990, I was around 30, 
early 30s with family and kids. So I was heading down the second career path. Yep. So I, I didn't have any appreciation for the term entry level. <laughs> right. So I, I had to master it. Uh, success that I experienced those few years, five years in Shreveport there, is what caught the attention of headhunters. And I ended up being recruited to go to St. Louis. And so it all paid off in that regard. Uh, you 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 navigated that well. In fact, you're an example of what I'd call lateral entry into nonprofit. You know, you had great corporate experience for those 15 years. I and you and I both talked to people who from the corporate sector who um, aspire to be part of a cause and join nonprofit. But I think sometimes it's not exactly what they expect. I wonder were there lessons you learned transitioning from for profit to nonprofit that you now advise some of your colleagues in the corporate world who think about nonprofit. Sometimes it, it, it may not be a good idea. Uh, I totally agree. I mean, when you, when you think about why a not-for-profit organization even exists, um, the, the reason is government has given this tax status to an organization to deliver a service that, number one, government is not going to deliver in most cases. And the private sector, the model doesn't fit into their for-profit environment. Therefore, a not-for-profit organization is, is created in an effort to deliver this service where the ultimate delivery or deliverable is not a profit, but it's the service that the organization is charged to deliver to the community. Right. If you're coming from a for-profit driven environment and you step into a not-for-profit environment with that for-profit mentality, it's a train wreck in the making. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, there are several aspects, Patton. The, there's the for-profit motives versus the, uh, delivery or service delivery motive. That's a report. In, in, in the for-profit world, for the most part, you have one boss, one direct boss. If you're the leader of a, of a, a, a not-for-profit entity and you're reporting to a board, you can have 15 bosses. Exactly right. And every last one of them can have a different perspective about your job. And in some cases, all of them probably believe they can do your job better than you. <laughs> and, and so you have to navigate that. And that's clearly outlined in the book, if you remember. We oh, talk yes. about understanding the individual attributes of your board members and understanding why they're on the board. People join board for different reasons, but that's a big difference that's a big navigation piece that you you don't have in the for-profit world. Your your engagement with partners in the for-profit world, you engage with vertical or horizontal partners for the purpose of how they can enhance your bottom line. Right. 
it's strictly profit driven where there's an engagement that takes place in the not-for-profit world where you have to navigate relationships with organizations who can impact positively or negatively what you're doing. And that organization can also directly, directly um, impact your funding. Uh, you're, it's such a good point. Well, several good points. One, I, and I want to explore because in the book, you indeed get into board relationships, which I think is absolutely um, a potential danger zone for nonprofit executives. They look at the board as a whole, and, and you very clearly articulate it's an individual relationship with each one of them, often from very different perspectives. Ronnie, you also make the point about nonprofit boards that despite their corporate talent and experience, often you saw they would show up at your board meetings and it's almost like they took off <laughs> their hat of, of intelligent thinking. Um, why is that? Or, or maybe you can elaborate on that dilemma you sometimes ran into. That, that chapter is called Civic Lobotomy. And, <laughs> Fantastic. And, and you're absolutely right. What happened, most board members, come from very successful environments in the for-profit world. And they're, they're leaders and, and pretty successful. But for some reason, they, when they come into our boardroom, a lot of that savviness, a lot of that concise decision-making, a lot of that thorough input, it, it's left at the door. And they do and accept things that they never would allow to happen in their organizations. Why is that? You think they just, it's a charity and I'm, I'm using air quotes as I say that, and they, they don't want to bring or apply the same intellectual rigor. Yeah. I think there's in some regards, there's a little discomfort of not being familiar with the environment. Yeah. Good point. It's a, they're in a, Although they, the company, or even in some cases personally, you write a check to the organization. So you, there's that charity mentality, and we don't need to be as tough in here. Right. Um, you might have a CEO that probably is not performing up to par, but you're willing to give him or her a, a little more runway where you never would allow that in your organization in your private organization and the person didn't meet, didn't meet the number, you know, a change would be made. Right. And, and it wouldn't, you, you wouldn't think twice about it. Um, I, I, I tell the story in my book, the belief that CEOs, executive directors are probably fired or asked to leave um, anywhere from two and a half to three and a half years later than they probably should have been asked to leave. Interesting. And one of the reasons, Patton, is that if you're if you're the chairman of a not-for-profit organization and you preside over the dismissing of a of the CEO, you take on a part-time job. Although you might name an interim CEO, but as chairman of the board, you've got work to do in terms of ensuring that 
stakeholders and partners truly understand and appreciate that the organization is not falling apart. And it will continue to be true to its mission. And you also have to convey that to senior staff, uh, in, or in most cases, all the staff, depending on the size of the organization. And so a quote-unquote busy executive might not be ready for that level of responsibility. That's a good point. So what will, what they will do if, for example, if you're the chair, I'm your CEO, you think without a doubt or believe without a doubt that running needs to go. But here it is. Now it's August, September, and your term ends December 31st. You think, well, well, if I can just put up with him for three and a half more months, then it's somebody else's problem. I'm not going to rock the boat either, right? I'm not going to rock the boat. And so Ronnie gets a little reprieve, okay? January 1, Ronnie gets a, a new chair who Ronnie is smart enough to know how to smooth. <laughs> and so, right. but that, that smoothing lasts seven, eight, if I'm good, nine months. And eventually that chair understands what the other chair was telling them now. You follow me? Exactly. What? And it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Exactly. How do oh, we yeah. attack it? Ronnie, is there, do we need to have better orientation for our board to make sure they're clear? Yeah, uh, I think we most definitely do. Uh, boards can get comfortable. You know, we, we have what we call the pendulum swing. Some boards lean heavy towards being staff-driven, or some organizations lean heavy towards being staff-driven. If you've got a strong traditional staff, boards traditionally will not have to work that hard, you know? Right. Or if the pendulum swings the other way and you don't have a strong independent staff, you've got boards that are more members that are much more hands-on. So it depends on the type organization. But I do believe we do not spend enough time orienting the board and having the board members take total responsibility for um, take responsibility for the actions of the staff and allow things to kind of build up. But right. if, if the board would understand the board is in charge of, of the ends, staff is in charge of the means. And in other words, tell me what you want accomplished and I'll determine how it's accomplished. Uh, it's a great way to articulate yeah. that. Yeah, and so if you can, you know, and I mentioned in the book, that's one of the most serious areas of contention uh, between board members and, and the executive. You know, how wide is that lane and exactly where is that line? And, and it moves depending on who the chair is. Right. It just depends. I've had some very hands-on, chair and i've had some chairs if i didn't call them they didn't call me <laughs> right <laughs> that's so, a, such again a great point that if, if we assume a model is consistent through in our our nonprofit organization we're mistaken because it could change literally year to year literally year to year and 
And I don't know, Patton, if you could say which model is better. It just depends on the organization, depends on what you're trying to accomplish, um, the expertise of the individuals who are your board members and, and, and the different resources that they can bring to the table. We, we put a lot of, uh, we give uh, credence to, a lot of credence to writing a check. And, and without a doubt, writing a check is the lifeline right. of our organization. But there are situations where there's something a board member might be able to contribute that can be just as or even more valuable than the money if they can open the right door for you. And That's, again, it just depends on what you what you're trying to accomplish. Well, excellent points. And I love the fact that our listeners who are in kind of senior roles can perhaps rethink their relationship with the board as a whole, but more importantly, their board members individually uh, and have some of the finesse that you obviously have demonstrated through your career. I guess another category I want to move to and pick your brain is on the staff side. We also have a lot of listeners who are thinking about perhaps a lateral entry like you did. I'm in corporate, but I'd like to go nonprofit or I simply, I'm a young professional. I want to get into nonprofit work. You hired a lot of people, Ronnie. You had to evaluate talent. Were there key characteristics, particularly in your nonprofit leadership roles, that you were looking for when you hired people? Well, in the not-for-profit area, the first thing I look for is passion for the mission. Yep. You, you, you've got to identify people who truly believe in, in what you're doing. Um, you know, I... I ran an um, economic development organization. Well, I want to know what's your connectivity and for in the case of the partnership, how do you feel about Charlotte? What do you do in an effort outside of work to help Charlotte? What kind of passion do you have for this community? Outside the job. Exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Because that's where it starts. And then you can bring that passion into the organization. Um, we look at, you know, the general skill set of, of a white collar employment, that's pretty consistent. But that passion and desire and, and several things, and I teach this in my classes, if this job is just a nine to five to you, if that's all it is, you're in the wrong place. Yep. I this is not a job. This is a calling. This is a mission. We're here for a purpose. If you're a professional economic developer, you know, you you are responsible for an activity that no one else has responsibility for. And if you're not successful, your community is dramatically impacted by your lack of success. So understand the responsibility and have the passion to really appreciate the fact that failure is not an option. Yep. And I also share that if your trip in the morning to work becomes one of drudgery, if you are thinking, boy, I hate, I've got to go in. If it's getting to that point 
where you're losing your zeal, I would encourage my guys, come talk to me. I will help you find another opportunity. Nice. Something that can give you, where you can exercise your passion for, since you seem to have lost it for what we're doing here. But you wouldn't punish him for it. You would encourage, let's find something else. I mean, what's what's the punishment? You, know, you don't want to fire somebody for losing their zeal. Right. I mean, that happened. That's the cycle of life. You know, and but you and you want people. I think you're aware. To, to, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there's some significant percentage of American workers who are dissatisfied and dissatisfied with their job. Right. And, and that's very unfortunate because I've been very fortunate to have had jobs that I love and and couldn't wait to, to get, get into the office or start a particular activity. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine having a job that I wasn't excited about. Yeah, that's sadly though, you're right. And, and the nonprofit sector deals with a turnover uh, dilemma. In fact, many fundraisers in particular are turning over at a, you know, 16, 18 month rate. And it sounds like as a manager, you want to meet that head on. If somebody's lost their zeal using your great quote, let's talk about it and either find a way to get you back on track or find you somewhere else to go. Exactly. You need the passion. Yeah, that, that's I, I, I'm clear that that's the criteria you looked for because you're right. Many of the requisite skills and experiences are pretty much uh, equal among candidates. So it's the passion factor that's going to get them hired on your team. And my sense from the book, Ronnie, is as a manager, you're hands off that you had high expectations, but you expected them to be self-starters. Is, is that accurate in terms of your management style? With, with without a doubt, I. There's no way I would enjoy being a micromanager. Right. Uh, I want people who understand their job, who do their job. I don't care what time you get to the office. I really don't care what time you leave the office. I'm interested in the product. You know your responsibility. And at the end of the day, I'm expected uh, to be, be accomplished. And you empower people to do their job. And I don't assign tasks. I assign responsibility. Yeah, good distinction. And you own it. It's yours. And if you fail, we fail. You carry in the team. Every time you step out representing us, regardless of the product project you're working on. And that's just the expectation. Um, organizations take on the personality of the person at the top. Yeah, I don't yeah. care. I don't care if it's a company, if it's a church, or whatever. You take the personality of the person at the top, and if, and if you set the tone for politeness and 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 passion and 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 camaraderie, those things trickle down. Responsibility. My guys knew in working with me and for me in all the areas I worked in, you know, they were very well aware of how I expected people outside of the office to be treated because they saw how I treated 
people outside of the office. Exactly right. You, you yeah. set the example. You set the example and people are watching you. And if you're disrespectful to someone, that's the green light for them to be disrespectful. Right. Well, again, you embody that and it's a good lesson for leaders. And I'm sure it helped those that were kind of climbing the ladder within your organizations to become leaders themselves. I guess that was, you know, a question I had for you is how you coach someone and we'll talk about your coaching in a minute, but within the organization, how did you cultivate leadership of your team? Well, by giving them upward mobility responsibility. Yep. And I have in my career that I'm aware of now, I have four former number twos who are running organizations in the country. Wow. And one of them, who back when he worked for me, I got him involved in my international association, and the internet in which I chaired in 07. He takes the helm as chair in our conference in Tampa here next week. Yeah, you have to be proud. And but yeah. is there is there is a, a was there a key? Obviously, your point is you gave them opportunities to lead even when they were number the number two, and therefore they were ready for number one. Exactly, and you have the conversation. You have to always ask, especially your senior staff. You know, what, what, where do you want to be in the next few years? You know, right? Are you comfortable just being number two? And in most cases, no, they want to be number one. I was the same way when I was number two, um, and. So if you if I know your aspiration is to is to be a leader, well then let's let's look at it. let's give you some opportunity to interact with the board and build some of those sensitivities that you need to in an effort to lead a board. Right. Because, you know, a board can give you heartburn. <laughs> yes, if indeed. You let it, but you have to learn learn that art, and it's not a science; it's an art of working with the board. Um, Start giving you some fundraising responsibilities or engagement where you learn how to interact with your board and have the financial discussion. You follow me? Totally. So give them responsibility that you know they will need. And then ask them. There could be some areas that that um, they are aware that would be considered a shortcoming that you might not be aware. But you've opened up a dialogue that allows them to comfortably talk about it. Very much. And also doing their tenure with you and post tenure with you, you have to be there for them. But Ronnie, even the question of course is you realize you're going to lose people when you give them such opportunity. How do you kind of counter that argument that, you're training people and that they're going to leave. Well, the issue is not what what people being trained and leaving is not the issue. The problem is you don't train them and they stay. (laughs) That is great. That's the problem. (laughs) Excellent counterpoint. Right. You cannot allow 
people to be in your, be, be concerned about losing good people. Now, believe me, no one likes turnover. I dislike turnover as much as anybody. But one way to slow down turnovers is to constantly reorganize in a sense where you change responsibility. And you put that person in a position where there's nothing left except except going to another organization being the CEO. Right. But you can work with that individual in the same job, and it might go from VP to senior VP to executive VP. Same person, technically the same job, but with more responsibility. Right. And that's grooming. And plus that's, and when you have someone that, that has worked for you from, you know, four to six years, it's a long time. The average tenure for a CEO is five to seven years. So when, if you get five years out of someone, you're doing good. Yeah. And that you're right. That exceeds the tenure of most nonprofit kind of senior professionals and you've made the organization better, not only for that individual, but the organization stronger because of that training and development you provided. Very much so. And I'm, I'm a proponent and I get in trouble with some of my colleagues, but I'm not impressed when someone tells me they've been CEO of this organization or that organization for 20 plus years. Interesting. That didn't impress me. I'm sorry. I you think feel like there's a eternal. Yeah, you you feel like, and I think you allude to this in the book. There's, there's you think there's kind of a life cycle of a an executive director. Yes. No one is time to go. Um, Michael Bloomberg, and I'm not giving him a political plug, but one of the comments that one of his quotes is, "You know, it's time to go when you start believing." that certain things can't be done. That's when somebody else needs to come in. And do it because you know that battle needs to be fought, but you're just tired of fighting. That's, again, well put. And Ronnie, this has been fantastic. I knew from the book you had wisdom in so many directions. Um, Normally I ask my guests a book to recommend, but I think I know the answer to that question already because you have written the book that you recommend. And I'm certainly going to feature that in the show notes associated with this episode. Tell us about your coaching. It seems to me you've wrapped up your wonderful experiences now and you're translating them to other people. Tell us what's it like to work with you as a coach. It's it's probably one for me, it's one of the most rewarding experiences, Patton because you really get a chance to help individuals and see the benefit of that help. Um, We all carry baggage. We have elements of our lives that we wish we could improve on. And as a a certified coach, um, I've been trained to help individuals identify that area that they would like to improve and also coach them into improving that area of their lives. And my belief is that 
I should never attempt to coach what I don't believe in practice myself. Right. So that makes me better because now these same 12 elements that, that, that I'm centering around your life, I have to make sure I'm checking those boxes for my life. So it makes me a better person. And the ultimate goal for us is to establish some level of peace in our lives. You know, we like to use the word hustle, the hustle bustle of life. Life should not be a hustle bustle. You can be successful and productive without seeming to be frazzled and disoriented on allowing different aspects of your life to eat at you. Hiring a coach and the clients I've had an opportunity to work with, the goal is to reach a level of authenticity, what we call stage three authenticity, where we truly get below the surface. And we talk about what exactly is going on. Because usually what you think it is, is something different. You know, you might think you've got a, a workforce problem or what your job, but really it's connected to something else in your life, like your relationship. Exactly. So you just can't pull out one area and say, well, we're going to fix this. Because it's all, your life is totally interconnected. And so that's where I spend some of my time in addition to other stuff we do. But that, that's a very rewarding aspect of, of my new company. That's fantastic. And it's evident that it's very much a two-way street, isn't it? You're providing a lot of wisdom, but you're also getting a lot out of these coaching relationships that you've established. Very, very much so. It, and it's, it's, for example, even in, in your business, you know, I teach economic development. Well, in order to teach, I have to be aware of the latest trend. Right. So it's educational for me also. Preparing for a class is, is me preparing and, and educating myself more on the topic. So Absolutely. that's a two-way street also. Well, Ronnie, the words of wisdom have been fantastic, as I knew they would be. Folks, the book is called Driving from the Back Seat. It is a wonderful read and practical in its advice and wisdom. Ronnie will link up to your website. I take it that would be where we can steer people to learn more about you and the coaching and consulting you provide? Very much so. That's www.rl.com. Bryant LLC.com. We'll have it linked up in the show notes, easy to find. And Ronnie, thank you very much for joining me on the path. My pleasure. Um, would you happen to know Oprah's number? <laughs> I'll, I'll see if I can find it. And if, of course, if I do, I'll put it in the show notes as well. That's right. If you talk to a tell her to call me. <laughs> <laughs> you count on it, Ronnie. You have a good one. I want to thank Ronnie again for joining me on this episode for a great conversation. And I hope you got as much out of it as I did in terms of 
what are leaders in this sector looking for and how might that shape the way you market yourself to executive directors like Ronnie, who are certainly out in our various communities. And also, what are the things you need to do to build the skills and finesse in particular working with a board of directors? I think that is a fundamental takeaway that I bring from this conversation. Don't forget the show notes are indeed available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, and you can find out many of the items we had uh, conversation about. And if you're listening as this episode comes out in March of 2020, early March of 2020, check out in particular a link to Ronnie's appearance in the Charlotte area uh, as part of a program called the 2020 Visionaries. He's one of six keynotes on March 11th in Charlotte. And they're going to be focused on strategic planning and goal achievement, which are certainly topics that this podcast uh, is trying to lift up. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And feel free to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll make sure to get each of our weekly episodes as well as bonus episodes. In fact, we've got one uh, we're working on right now in the next two weeks, so you'll be sure to catch that if you will. Thanks for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector. Keep up all the good work for causes that are meaningful to you, and we'll keep bringing you content to help you do this even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.